Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil, and I'll be your guide. Today's episode, Cortez the Murderer. It's the 1st of November, 1522. A year has passed since Spanish colonizing forces, conquistadors, took control of large parts of the Aztec Empire. The colonized land is named New Spain. It's here that the governor of New Spain, Hernán Cortés, hosts a party with his wife Catalina. But all is not well. The pair reportedly argue, and Catalina leaves the gathering early to go to her room. Within hours, her body would be found next to her bed, neck bruised, dead. Hernán Cortés is a name known to many, but could his troubling legacy also include the murder of his own wife? In this episode, I'm joined by historian Dr. Amy Fuller to explore the history of the Spanish and the Aztec empires, to delve into the life and legacy of Hernán Cortés, and to investigate the mysterious death of his first wife, Catalina Suárez. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we're going back quite a distance in this episode. So let's go back to the individual then, the man, the myth, the legend, Cortez. Can you tell me about his early life and how he came to rise to such prominence? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. It's um, really exciting to talk about this. So we we now call him Hernán Cortés, but his real name, if you like, was Hernando or Fernando. We're not sure. He's kind of both known as both. And his full name is Hernando Cortés de Monroy y Pizarro Altamirano. And he's born, we think, in either 1485 or 1486 in a place called uh, Medellín in Extremadura, which is in the central west of Spain, uh, a part that kind of borders Portugal. And it's actually where a lot of the conquistadors actually come from, which is quite interesting. So we think his family were what's known as uh, Hidalgos, which are basically petty nobility. So they don't have titles, but they have a duty to bear arms for their feudal lord and they have exemption from taxation so he's not nobility as such but he's he's not also not a kind of peasant or anything he's said to have attended the university of salamanca from the age of 14 to study law but we're not sure that this actually happened Uh, some people say that he trained as a notary in Valladolid where he learned to read and write. And we know that he did serve as a notary on Hispaniola, which is now Haiti in the Dominican Republic. So we know that he did that so for several years when he first arrived in the New World. So that theory might actually be the correct one that he kind of trained as a notary. But we know that he definitely had some legal training and uh, some ability with Latin. We think that when he was 19, he went briefly to serve in the wars in Italy, but we're not sure if that even happened. If he did, he kind of stayed there for very long, uh, less than a year. In 1504, he went to the Indies to seek his fortune, and that was where he, he served in the conquest of Cuba under the governor, Diego Velasquez. So that happened in 1511, so he takes part in that conquest of Cuba, and he's rewarded with one of these grants of indigenous labour and encomienda. We should note here that these grants of indigenous labour were essentially 
a system of slavery. Yes. So he establishes himself basically in, in Cuba, first of all. He's a notary there and he actually becomes a kind of mayor of one of the towns. But all along he has this reputation as a, as a womanizer to the extent that it, it was thought that he had syphilis, which had caused a kind of swelling behind his right knee or, or groin. There's a big mural in the National Palace of Mexico by Diego Rivera of Cortez looking very kind of grey and horrible with huge kind of swellings on his knees. <laughs> by 1512, so a year after the conquest of Cuba, he had a daughter with an indigenous woman and Diego Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, was the godfather. And he has a very strange relationship with Velasquez. They fall out a number of times. It's around 1514 that he has his first big quarrel with him because he's associated with some discontented settlers who wanted to be given more native labour than Velasquez was giving out. And he's arrested at that point so it's in 1519 when Cortes becomes the the man that we kind of know of today because after two previous voyages of exploration to the Yucatan which begin in 1517 the Spaniards stumble into Aztec territory they learn of the great empire and the treasure of Moctezuma and Velasquez at that point appoints Cortes as the leader of the third expedition. But just before he leaves, Velasquez becomes suspicious again of Cortes's political ambitions. He hears some disquieting rumours about him and orders Cortes to abandon the mission. But Cortes ignores him completely, manages to evade arrest several times. He drums up a following ensures he has plenty of provisions and he heads off to what we now know as Mexico. And I guess the rest is history, as they say. Gosh, he sounds like such a, a, a really ambitious but erratic man that you just would not trust whatsoever. And it's quite interesting because he's presented always as this political genius that makes all the right decisions, but they're always kind of risky decisions like he... When he gets to Mexico, for example, there are some men who want to turn back, so he, he destroys the ships so they can't get back. But what's rarely noted is that he's in a desperate situation, so he has to plough on or he's going to face a charge of treason. So this kind of, oh, wasn't he great at making these decisions even though they were risky well he didn't have a choice <laughs> you know he, he had to he had to just go for it seems to me as well that it, he's someone that fortune has favored there's an awful lot of luck in his story which other people may not have had yes definitely can you explain what relationships were like between the spanish colonizers or settlers or however we want to call them with the indigenous Americans? I think, first of all, it's probably really important to note the diversity of the indigenous peoples who were living in what's become known as central Mexico, which was essentially where the Aztec Empire was. The so-called conquest of Tenochtitlan was complete by August 1521. At that point, the island city in the in the middle of Lake Tex Texcoco fell to the Spanish conquistadors but it didn't just fall to the Spanish conquistadors it also fell to a number of indigenous groups that had also taken part in the war such as the long-standing foe of the Aztecs the Tlaxcalans but even though the Spaniards had 
the upper hand, they were well aware that they were in a precarious situation. So uh, in early 1524, for example, Cortes issues an edict insisting that all Spanish men maintain a full set of arms. They have to be ready to fight for the colony. And if they had one of these grants of indigenous labour and encomienda, they were expected to have more weapons. They were expected to have crossbows, muskets, plenty of ammunition, horses, etc. And if they didn't comply with this, they could lose that grant. And the Nawa, in general, if they were of a, a high status, were able to keep that status to an extent if they played along, if they agreed to convert, for example. But any rebellions were harshly put down and people were made examples of. One um, person in particular was the last Aztec emperor, Coatemoc, and he was executed in 1525 due to a supposed plot between indigenous leaders of the cities that had been allied with Tenochtitlan, so Texcoco and Tlacopan. Cortes had heard that these leaders were plotting to kill him and so he had them executed. The evidence for that plot seems to be extremely dubious. I was going to say, it sounds like something that's just been made up so that you can get rid of people. Uh, yes, I mean, it was extremely convenient for him because obviously they were the, the leaders of the um, cities that were fighting against the conquistadors and then their indigenous allies. So it was... You know, it was very convenient that he had an excuse, basically, to get rid of any potential troublemakers. I do wonder with the story of the conquistadors um, that it's something of a minefield with regards to the historiography. How do you go about approaching all of this, all of this kind of baggage from a historical point of view? Like, what's what's the real story? What are the challenges that come as a historian? One of the biggest challenges that we have is the way in which this history is written. And it starts with Cortes himself. He um, has gone against the orders of his um, direct superior, and therefore, essentially, the king. And he has to persuade the king that what he is doing is for his majesty and for Spain. So he creates this glorious kind of narrative of himself, uh, centering himself completely to the detriment of anyone else, really. He, he doesn't really give anyone else a look in. He writes a number of letters to the king. The next kind of big narrative is, is also his version, which is written by his, his secretary. It's commissioned by his son later on when Cortez's reputation has kind of taken a turn. By this point, we also have a kind of anti-conquistador narrative which is written by Bartolomé de las Casas, who writes the short account of the destruction of the Indies. He writes about all the atrocities that are happening generally in the Americas and only talks about Mexico a little bit, but it's enough to kind of rile up those who take part in the conquest. Uh, the next big narrative that we have is finished in 1568 and it's written by one of the prominent conquistadors who by that point is very old supposedly he says that he is kind of deaf and blind even by this point and he he says that he he started it a few times but was incredibly riled up 
both by the narrative that Cortez was the only person involved, but also he was very much angered by the anti-conquistador account uh, by Las Casas and others stating that they were, you know, just barbaric and that they, you know, they were awful human beings, essentially. Bernard Diaz's account is a kind of glorious narrative of the conquistadors. He kind of fleshes out the characters involved a lot more. He His idea is to try and give others a, a role, really. He does make sure that he is kind of front and centre in everything, he does ensure that we know other names apart from kind of Cortez and we know that Cortez wasn't the only one involved. So it's Diaz's account actually that becomes a favourite among historians, early historians of, of the conquest. And in the 19th century, we have the first kind of big history of the conquest written by Prescott. And this is, it's a great big thing, but it's very problematic. In what way? He kind of continues this great heroic idea of of the conquistadors. And he really, he really kind of pushes the idea of a band of a few hundred men taking on the mighty Aztec empire. When in fact, you know, you've got a number of indigenous groups involved, some of whom side with the Spaniards, obviously. But though he does talk about it, he he always presents, and and this obviously comes from Cortez's narrative himself, he always presents this idea that they were persuaded to to be involved. You know, their agency is effectively taken away to to a large extent. But when you think about it, especially for the Tlaxcalans, who are the, the biggest kind of enemy of the Aztecs, why would they not? kind of go to war against the the Aztecs if they feel they've got a real opportunity you know to defeat them so that's kind of lost quite quite a bit from the narrative you know you get this idea that Cortez is this master of persuasion that he manipulates these people into fighting and the funny thing is in Mexico actually this narrative is is pushed as well after independence because they don't really want to present an idea that the indigenous people took part in the conquest so again there's an idea that Cortez kind of tricked the Tlaxcalans in in particular in in being involved in the conquest so from both sides you kind of get this erasure really of of indigenous agency within the conquest Ross Hazig one very prominent Aztec historian has called the conquest uh, a civil war that the Spaniards were involved with which I think is is quite a good way of of thinking about it really Mexico would have it it was an invasion Spain would have it that it's a conquest but there's a lot to to suggest that it's actually a kind of civil war in which the Spaniards take part. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that because obviously we cover the same period in history, the early modern period, but I fixate on a separate geographical area, so mainly the countries within Britain and also Ireland, but then also colonial North America. And it's interesting because the beats of what you're describing, they're the same. You get the same kind of patterns, the same myth-making, the same atrocities, people double-dealing, people just looking after themselves. So, yeah, it's really fascinating. Into this mix, there would be a murder. Can you 
tell me about his wife, his his first wife? Okay, so we know that her family was from Granada and she went with her brother and her mother and three or four sisters to Cuba in 1509. And they went with the vicerine, uh, Doña Maria de Toledo. They were apparently ladies-in-waiting and the narrative that's presented by Cortez's biographer, she's presented as a bit of a gold digger. Apparently her and her sisters were very pretty, but they were all a bit poor. Now, uh, this is a bit, you know, this is debatable there, kind of how poor they were, because maybe they didn't have tons of money, but they must have been very well connected to be ladies-in-waiting of the vicerine, because they would have been selected from you know, her inner circle. So she was probably lower nobility, but perhaps didn't have a great amount of wealth. It's said by Cortez's biographer that the sisters went to try and find some rich husbands and that she had kind of ambitions to become this great woman. At the time, um, because there were so few Spanish women in the Indies, actually Spanish women would have been kind of quite sought after by single men at this point. So according to his biographer, Cortes courted her and was imprisoned because he refused to marry her. And she actually sued him and forced him to keep his promise. Now, the governor of Cuba, Diego Velasquez, was on her side because apparently he was in love with one of her sisters. And it was expected, basically, that that when men and women had an engagement or a promise to marry, they might start having sex. So the idea is that basically Cortez kind of promised her that he'd marry her so that he could get what he wanted and then didn't go through with it. And when generally when a man withdrew his agreement to marry, the woman could make a complaint and a record would be kept. They did eventually marry in, in 1516. We don't really know much of her life while Cortez was in Mexico because she stayed behind in Cuba. But once the conquest had kind of finished in 1521, Cortes decreed that in order to settle the new colonies, the men, the, the Spanish men, had to bring over wives, if they had wives, within 18 months. So Catalina was brought over to Mexico, we think, in August 1522. So that was a year after the fall of Tenochtitlan. And some suggest that Cortes almost... At the same time, Cortez's son with his main interpreter, Doña Marina or Melinsin, was born. So she was brought into a pretty uncomfortable situation, really. We know that he had this son. We also know that he had been with a number of, of other women during the time that he was away from Catalina. So she's arrived in this situation. She's with her husband, um, who's basically living a single life with many mistresses, having children, left, right and centre, spreading his syphilis about to everybody and anybody. He clearly does not need or want his wife to be there. He doesn't want her in the picture. Can you tell me about how she died? So we don't know for sure. There were two main kind of versions of events. Witnesses say that Cortez and his wife went to bed and at around midnight, Cortez called out for help, declaring that his wife was dead. Now, Cortez himself doesn't address her death in his letters at all. And to continue the kind of misogynistic narrative that's um, in his biographer's account, 
the only thing that his biographer, Francisco Lopez de Gomorra, has to say about her is that she died without issue. So, and that's all he has to say. Now, Bernal Diaz, the one of the other conquistadors who writes that, that big uh, narrative, says that she, of the conquest, says that she died from an asthma attack. And we have other accounts from the Cortez side saying that she died from a condition called mal de madre, which doesn't ha- really have an English translation. And it's really difficult to define Sometimes it's associated with hysteria or it's a kind of disease related to the uterus or the ovaries involving kind of uh, abdominal pain. So this is also given as a cause of her death, but it's not something that's actually usually fatal. And an asthma attack is also not really that plausible given the other evidence that we have. Now, in the official depositions in the kind of investigation against Cortez, it was told that she was in poor health and in particular that she had a weak heart. But again, this is this is witnesses testifying on behalf of Cortez because there is quite a bit of evidence to suggest that Cortez actually strangled her. <laughs> okay, right. So we've got this idea that she might have had asthma then or, or she might have had some kind of hysteria, um, whatever that was. Apparently she fainted a lot. So, you know, that's it. Of course she fainted a lot. She's a woman. She's probably swooning over Cortez. <laughs> Um, But then we have evidence of strangulation. Can you go into a bit more detail about how we how we know this? So we have eyewitness accounts that Cortez and Catalina had a very public row that night. There are witnesses stating that Catalina was very vocal about how sad her life was and that Cortez kind of even said that he didn't want her there. And the mother and uncle of Catalina accuse Cortez of murdering her. And what we have in in testimony is that there were bruises around Catalina's neck when she was found dead and that it was thought that she she was strangled by him. So we've got a number of, of witnesses who give very similar stories of of marks around her neck, kind of finger and thumb marks around the neck, and that also that there was blood on her face. And there are 14 people who testify that Cortez killed his wife, either because of what they saw or heard. We think as well that she died on the bed, whereas Cortez said she was on the floor because the, the bed had been urinated on. So we think that perhaps that's where she actually died. And also eyewitnesses say that her eyes were kind of wide open, like she had drowned, that she had blue grey lips, that she had foam at her mouth and that there were beads of blood on her face and a scratch between her eyebrows and there's been a more modern discussion of all of this evidence 1921 I think it was written about that talks about what you'd expect to see on someone who has been strangled so all of this is consistent with strangulation especially blood on the face if the victim has has resisted Now, Cortez says that she fainted and that he grabbed her to stop her fainting as she fell to the floor. And this was how he tried to explain the marks around her neck. Mm, That doesn't make sense. You're going to grab her around the neck so hard that you'll leave 
hand, thumb and fingerprint. So why would you grab her around the neck? Exactly. It's not really what you do if someone was fainting, is it? Nah, don't believe him. Don't believe him. It, it, it would seem that there was quite a, a struggle uh, and that, you know, she resisted even. And also the way that he treated her body was quite suspicious so usually you'd have a, a doctor attend, even in kind of New Spain at this time, a, a doctor would attend a suspicious death. There would be an autopsy, but that didn't happen. Cortez basically got the body away as soon as possible and also didn't have your typical Spanish funeral. So normally the body would be present at a mass, for example, but instead he, he made sure she was buried incredibly quickly. So again, this all of this doesn't sound very sounds very suspicious. I think it sounds more than suspicious. I think he's clearly, I mean, just from what you're saying, the evidence that, that you've said, it's clearly him. He's killed his wife to get her out of the picture. And it also makes me think that his wife's death is going to be commented on. Whether it was an actual death or whatever, it's going to be commented on. But it makes me worried about other women that he's encountered that maybe might not have had the same level of agency or or someone to speak up for them Ugh, not a nice man at all no i don't like cortez okay so this was investigated as part of a wider investigation into his activities what was the consequences of this to him so annoyingly not very much in 1526 Basically, he was subjected to what's known as a residencia, which is a kind of investigation and trial because the crown was suspicious of his conduct. He was said to have made false reports of lands that he had conquered in order to defraud the king. He was even suspected of trying to create an independent sovereignty. Some say that this was the result of his enemies' lies about him. So, for example, the big narrative that we have of the conquest uh, written in the in the nineteenth century, Prescott says this. He says that it was just not it was just people being jealous, and it was his enemies saying this essentially. But there is evidence to suggest that there were genuine concerns about the amount of power that he wielded and that the crown wanted to take control. And some of his letters as well, he, he would kind of tell the king what was going to happen. And there is evidence to suggest that the the king eventually got kind of fed up of Cortes dictating to him and that essentially Cortes got too big for his boots, really. So a commissioner was selected the first commissioner, a guy called Luis Ponce de Leon, and he arrived in July 1526. However, he died a few weeks after his arrival. There are a lot of claims that Cortez poisoned him. According to Cortez's biographer, it was actually his own fault. He kind of tried to ignore Cortez and he went and ate somewhere else and it was that food that, that made him sick. Others suggest that it was actually Cortez that, that poisoned him. And the man who took over the job, so the second commissioner, was a guy called Marcos de Aguilar. He was quite old and ill, according to some reports. And some reports even suggested that he was so kind of old and ill that he kept himself alive with a prescription of medication and by being breastfed. Oh my God, these people... <laughs> What's going on? This is just so weird. I know. But before he'd completed eight months in the post, he also died and Cortez is suspected of having killed him as well. So part of the charges that were, were put against him 
were these two murders along with the, the murder of, of Catalina. So Cortes returns to Spain in 1528 to protest his innocence in front of the king and he leaves New Spain with loads of treasure, fine fabrics, exotic animals, a number of indigenous entertainers even, such as jugglers. And Cortes gets an audience with the king and he manages to obtain a title quite a good title. He becomes the Marquess of the Valley of Oaxaca, which he was given in July 1529, which shows to some extent, I think, that by this point, Cortes was beyond reproach. The king did want him out of government, definitely, but he also felt that he had to reward him for what he'd done, probably because his his fame was intertwined into this narrative as well of Spain's glorious conquest of the Aztec Empire. So he's obviously newly ennobled at this point and that's when he he gets himself his second wife which he believed was much more befitting of his higher status it's a lady called Doña Juana de Zuniga and incidentally her uncle had actually defended Cortes in court in order to get the marriage arranged between his niece and the conquistador so Cortes returns to New Spain in 1530 with his new wife And at this point, he has been removed from office. He was removed from office in 1526. But now one of his sworn enemies is in charge of the government of New Spain. And he's also in charge of this investigation. There's a guy called Nuno de Guzman, um, who is also awful. (laughs) And he actually gets taken out of government that same year for just being an awful person who does terrible, terrible things. So all of the proceedings of this investigation are are contained in a document called the Esquisa Secreta, or the Secret Inquiry, and apparently it's almost a hundred folio pages long, so it's it's a massive, massive document that's now kept in Seville in the archive of the Indies. And there are eight charges, including plotting to cast off his allegiance to the king, extortion, the murder of the two commissioners, and the murder of Catalina. And as a part of this investigation, his father-in-law, his first father-in-law, Juan Juarez demands justice for the death of his daughter, which he clearly thought was was murder. But he was never actually tried properly for murder in the end, because the process goes on till 1534, and Cortes disputes the charges, he has lots of people testify for him, and creates a narrative and paints a picture of a really sickly Catalina with a weak heart who has a history of fainting and who was ill on that particular evening during dinner. And the men who testify on Cortez's behalf all had encomiendas, so grants of, in, of indigenous labour or other rewards bestowed upon them by Cortez for their service during the conquest. And they said things like they knew, you know, she was very ill, she fainted a lot all the time, she fainted to the floor. Some of them even give specific anecdotes dating to their lives in Cuba together, saying that, that she would often faint to the ground and sometimes she'd even have no pulse and people would think that she was dead you know because her fainting spells were so bad but then all the while they're being paid by Cortez so he's buying allies to clear his name he's managing to kick it into the long grass and hoping it will probably just continue to roll until either people lose interest or he dies naturally um I'm assuming he did die naturally Uh, could could you tell me when did he finally depart this earth he, he dies of a disease kind of relating to diarrhoea, actually. It sounds like he had actually had a horrible death 
Ah, so the shit gets the shits and dies. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I don't condone violence and taking taking joy in other people's pain, but seriously, I'm happy to make an exception for this man. Okay, tell me about his legacy. So it it's quite interesting because it really depends on on where you're where you're looking in from, if you like. In terms of kind of Spain's perspective, he's still viewed as this kind of heroic guy whereas in in Mexico he is the devil he's he's you know the lowest of the low but unfortunately you still have this idea of Cortez kind of leading this great mission with just a handful of adventurers often they're called adventurers and it's just awful and they achieve the impossible you know and people kind of don't realise quite how problematic this is because even as early as the 1540s, this narrative of heavily outnumbered Spaniards besting the Aztec Empire was used as evidence to prove that the Spaniards were, sorry, and I say prove in inverted commas, obviously, that the Spaniards were of a higher level of intelligence than the Mesoamericans and thereby kind of justifying the conquest for the indigenous people's own good. It's just awful. So this idea that kind of Europeans would triumph over indigenous people, however formidable or whatever the odds, because of a kind of innate cultural superiority has been perpetuated. Prescott in the 19th century continues this and it's it's repeated over and over. And actually, if you kind of look at what we have from the Aztec perspective of what the Spaniards were actually like during the conquest, you get this view that the Aztecs would have been completely baffled by this idea of a heroic group of adventurers because they saw them as as, as cowards, dishonourable cowards really is the description that you get of them because they didn't fight as the Aztecs fought in close quarters. They would use these cannons, use, use guns, you know, be kind of distant from from the killing and this was seen as incredibly kind of dishonorable the Aztecs describe them as being like drunks and and being like barbarians and obviously this this is written after the conquest as well by a people who have obviously had their lives kind of turned upside down and they want to do their ancestors justice so there is a kind of degree of creating a kind of legacy of the Aztecs as kind of honorable warriors as well so we do have to kind of take it as a pinch it, with a pinch of salt i mean in terms of catalina herself no one's really heard of her she's usually just a footnote in books about cortez no one really pays any attention to her the woman he's most famously linked with is doña marina his um, interpreter and actually her legacy because she's been linked to cortez whether her relationship with Cortez was even consensual is is questionable but she's become this kind of Mexican Eve figure she is also seen as as kind of conspiring with the devil if you like you know she and, and a traitor to her people with thanks to Dr Amy Fuller whose next book will explore how the history of Spain was rewritten after the conquest Please remember to follow Killing Time on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.